Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So, Blake, I heard we got some reviews, and I only know this because I don't have an iPhone, so I make my daughter check every morning when we drive to school on her <laughs> iPhone the reviews. But I think we got three this week, and you get to read them. Yeah, it's funny. You can't see iTunes reviews unless you have an Apple device or you download uh, iTunes for your PC, which I hear you don't want to do that. But as a service to our listeners, if you read the reviews for all the people that don't have iTunes like me, now I get to hear what the reviews are. Yes. So we got three reviews. Thank you so much to our listeners. We got a review from MMN Cali. What a great podcast. Find for staying up to date on all things accounting. I especially have appreciated the accounting app news updates. Keep those coming. Thank you so much for listening. Another review from RDXB1. Blake and David do an amazing job informing the listeners of changes in the accounting industry with the latest technology, and the podcast is produced very well. Oh, well, thank you for noticing. And finally, uh, we got a review from Zolly125. Blake and David do a great job keeping up on the news and have a great discussion every week. Thanks, Zolly, for listening. And I, I have one more. I can't forget Caleb Jenkins gave us a review back in February. He said, if you only have one time for one podcast to listen to, I wholeheartedly recommend the Cloud Accounting Podcast by David Leary and Blake Oliver. They cover the best news in the accounting profession each week, and they do it in a very engaging mechanism. Thank you, Caleb. And thank you, everyone else who left a review. If you want to leave a review, go to iTunes, give us five stars, or you know, however many stars you think we're worth. David, where else can people leave reviews? Facebook. You can go to our Facebook page and you can uh, leave a rating there. They've kind of buried it now. It used to be like top and center on Facebook. They're always moving it around. But you can go there and find and leave a review there. I think you can leave a review on Spotify now. I'm not positive. The reason we ask you to do that is because these services use the reviews to determine if they're going to recommend us to other accountants. So if you want to help us spread the good word about cloud accounting, Give us a review and we'll read it on the air. And with that, David, I think we got some follow up from a story last week, right? Yes. So last week I reported that there was two um, lobbying groups for taxpayers. Mm -hmm. They were lobbying to have a 30 day extension for the tax deadline. Tax season. Tax season. Oh, wow. And we kind of loosely joked like, oh, that's going to, you know, accountants better cancel <laughs> their vacations and things like that. Well, this may not be such a joke anymore. Officially, a pair of House Democrats have introduced a bill to extend the tax deadline until May 20th. Oh, no. So this is a real news story now. It's not just, it's a real possibility that's on the table now. It's no longer a recommendation. Buy that trip insurance if you've got a trip booked in, uh, in April or May. Why should they have to suffer? Because the government couldn't get its act together. You know, as part of this bill, they give bonuses to accountants that work more. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see where this goes. And did say like, were they, was it bipartisan? A pair of House Democrats. Okay. This is kind of partisan, right? Because uh, <laughs> they're blaming the Republicans for the shutdown. I doubt the Republicans in Congress will support this because then that would admit that the shutdown had caused a problem, right? So uh, we'll see. Um, my guess is it doesn't go anywhere. Some things are kind of... Uh Somewhat illogical. Like their argument is they're contending that the extra five weeks would help ensure taxpayers have online tools they need to file the returns electronically to avoid last year's breakdown, which was one day. Yeah. One of the issues you brought up was the fact that the IRS wasn't answering most of the phone calls they got. Well, definitely during the shutdown, but even after they were still behind, they were answering like 40% of their calls or something. Well, yeah. Because I mean, ultimately, it's still the perfect storm, right? New tax law changes that have never been in place before combined with a lack of IRS staff to answer the questions. Extending this deadline maybe just creates another storm. With that, why don't we turn to some software updates? QuickBooks has an update, right? Projects has gotten deeper, if that's the right word I want to use for that. 
projects is for uh, customer jobs. You know, you're doing uh, project work for individual customers. You can track that and get a PL by each customer job. But now it's, it'll do your team's labor costs as well. Got it. Tying back through T-sheets and tying back through the Intuit payroll. And so that's a big, a big add to the projects feature. So just to make sure I'm clear, because I haven't used it myself, projects is a separate area in QuickBooks Online. So like stuff that I used to use classes for, I could now use projects to track. Is that the idea? Yeah. Um, like in the QuickBooks desktop days, you'd have customers and you have sub jobs. Right. Right. And you'd put everything to sub jobs. That could also get messy too, because you might have maybe you're a t shirt print shop and you have a returning customer that comes over and over again and gets different kinds of custom things printed. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you have like 100 sub jobs underneath that customer. And that's kind of weird when really these are truly projects, individual projects you're doing that you, know, you want to track. And uh, especially if they're big, they get to be bigger projects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you want to you get a separate PL for those and then you don't have to use a class to do those. Right. Okay. Got it. Well, which is important now because you don't want to use your classes because if you use too many, you're forced to upgrade to QBO Advanced. Oh yeah. And we should talk about that. It was interesting. I connected two stories in our last two episodes that I thought were unrelated, but ended up being very relevant. Let me go back in time. Two episodes ago, we talked. Do you have a sound effect for that? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Go back in time. Right. We're going back in time. We talked about the limits, the new limits that Intuit has put into QuickBooks Online for anyone who's not on their new advanced plan, which is relatively expensive. I think the list price is $150. You can get it discounted for something like 80 or 90 bucks, but that's way more than QuickBooks Plus or whatever, you know, the $30 to $60 a month plan that people are used to paying for, right? Yep. They put in these new usage limits that never used to be there in the lower tiered plans that limit the number of classes you can have to 40. And that was something that you were bumping up against, David, because you were using classes to track all of your what events that you are doing for your new company, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Conferences. and Yeah. So, you know, you, you don't want to use a customer for that because it's not a customer. It's a project. So you were using classes um, and you got stuck because now you can only have 40. Well, in addition to that limit, and actually I think it's 40 for combined classes and locations. Am I right on that? I can't remember. Yes. Yes. So that yeah, could really yes. limit you. And then you are limited to 200 accounts in your chart of accounts, which... Or 250. I see where you're going. Yeah, because we had the episode where we talked about the limits and then a different episode following that episode. And you talked about the number of average uh, accounts in the chart of accounts. Yeah. So then um, so we talked about the limits. And I at the time, I was like 250 in the chart of accounts. No big deal. Most people aren't going to have that many. Right. Well, I ran into a chart from APQC, a benchmarking not for profit that surveys businesses of all sizes all over the country. And they came out with a stat last month about how many accounts the average company has in their chart of accounts. And most businesses in this in this country have more than 200 in their chart of accounts, something like at least 75%, if not more than that. I, I, I don't have the chart in front of me, but I think it was the top 25% of businesses that had 250 or fewer. And the other 75% had more than that, up to thousands even. So this is a problem because there are lots of businesses now that are exceeding this chart of accounts limitation, but they don't really need all the so-called advanced features in uh, QuickBooks Online Advanced, which up to this point really only include 25 billable users. And I looked at my own chart of accounts, my personal file, and I have something like over 200. And I'm wondering who came up with this limit? Probably not an accountant. 
is my guess. And there's been a lot of chatter on Facebook groups that I'm in, QuickBooks Facebook groups, where people are really upset about this. And some of them are moving completely off of QuickBooks Online and back to desktop because of it. Yeah, that's the ironic thing in this. I've I've seen some of these comments like uh, in these threads on Facebook and even on Twitter. It was discussed a little bit in QBO chat yesterday. It's almost backfiring, right? Like the whole point of these limits and then the new QuickBooks Advance is to get people off of QuickBooks desktop enterprise into the cloud, get them on QBO and, you know, obviously to compete for other enterprise products. And it feels like these limits are just, they're just not rolled out properly. It's putting a bad taste in people's mouths. Yeah. But I also get why they're doing it because you're going to move people from $40 subscriptions to $99 subscriptions. Yeah, but I mean, it makes sense <laughs> from a math perspective. If from an Intuit boardroom perspective, it makes a lot of sense. I guess so, but uh, it's not going to help them converting people from desktop to online. That's for sure. It gives the desktop people another excuse. Yeah. Not to move to cloud. And it would really, really annoy me if I were a pro advisor and I had moved everyone from desktop to cloud to online when there weren't any limits. And now suddenly they're putting limits on me after the fact. I feel like at the very least, this should have been for new customers only. To put it in retroactively is bad business practices. That would piss me off. And, you know, the rationale for adding these limits on their official QuickBooks page is really disingenuous if you ask me. I'll read it to you, okay? Under why are we adding limits, it says, quote, our goal is to make sure that your product meets your needs. Usage limits help ensure that as your business grows, you're using the version of QuickBooks that has all the tools you need to get deeper insights, save time, and be more productive. End quote. I mean, I, yeah, that's marketing speak. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's marketing speak for sure. But that actually came up in the QBO chat yesterday as well is like, Apparently, there's some some grandfathering, but even that's confused because somebody said, oh, you just, if you're grandfathered in, you're grandfathered in. And somebody else said, oh, no, if you've already exceeded it, it's okay, but you just can't add extras. Well, yeah. But so, so, if, so, so if you have 48 classes, this goes implemented, you can't add class 49. You can't do anything. Like, yeah, that's stupid. What a mess. I think the thing that makes it worse is the fact that QuickBooks Online was rolled out or QuickBooks Online Advanced was rolled out with really not not much that actually differentiated it from any of the other plans. At first, all you got was more than five users. You got up to 25 simultaneous users, which is like, okay, big what? Most businesses don't need 25 simultaneous users in QuickBooks, even if they're on desktop. And they added in smart reporting powered by Fathom, so you get a free Fathom subscription worth $39 a month. Okay, great. If I already wanted Fathom, I'd probably already have it, right? And then they have now custom user permissions, but they still haven't really done anything that makes it like QuickBooks Enterprise, which is what I assume QuickBooks Online Advance is supposed to be, the new online version of Enterprise. This is not a strategy that Intuit hasn't used before. It was there with desktop, but the limits were ridiculous. I think if you had, your limit was like 9,999 yeah. and then customers, right? And then once you, if you needed 10,000 customers, you had to move to QuickBooks Enterprise. Like you literally had to have some major numbers to, to do that. And it feels like these numbers are just too low based on the average number of chart of accounts for most businesses in America. Uh, uh, a schmuck business like me, that's teeny, teeny, teeny. I have 40 chart of, I have 40 classes. The numbers just feel too yeah. low. They just feel way too low for what people like, what, what everybody would generally say as an enterprise. Yep. And I, I just find it really ironic that it's just giving fodder to the desktop yeah. lovers more reasons not to use move to the cloud, which is just making me That's sad. That's what makes me sad too, that. right? We're a podcast about cloud accounting and here is the biggest player in the space giving people a reason not to switch. Another uh, crutch. Uh, yes. Hopefully it'll stop soon. Yeah. One of these days. All right. What's next? Um, 
back to taxes, I guess. Uh, so Louisiana is working to recover $26 million in improper tax refunds. What happened? So Jacques Berry is a spokesman for the Division of Administration, which oversees the state's technology office. Berry blamed a computer system error for the mistake, which paid 66,000 taxpayers twice for the refunds they were owed. Wow. I, my gut says this is not a computer system error. My gut is, is somebody ran a process to kick off the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the refunds and then somebody else walked by and did the process get done? I don't know. Hit send. And then they sent the same thing at the, the because this is kind of like a batch, right? right? You have, of ACH transactions. Now they did say that they figured it out. And because it's almost all ACH, <laughs> they were able to go and they, pull they it would. out of people's accounts. Sorry to interrupt, but, but what if, what yeah. if, you know how, you know how, when you are like putting in your credit card to pay for something, you're supposed to just click once. Yes. And if you click twice, you might get charged twice. Like what if that's <laughs> what happened here that like somebody was running the batch and they clicked process. And they didn't think that it worked and they just clicked it again. I mean, that to me, that's it's human error, but it's also software error because the software should like not let you run the same batch twice in such close sequence. Especially for the important thing like that, right? right? Like the the, the money going out, usually you want to have, this was ran already once today. Are you sure you want to run this batch a second time? But it's a, it's, it's still like another, it just goes back to, wasn't the IRS sending out like, they had no control over million dollar checks that are going out. Apparently these tax agents have no control yeah. over the money leaving. So in them. one of our previous episodes, I don't remember which one recently we talked about how the IRS internal controls only flag tax refunds over a ridiculous amount of money. It's like $2 million. So there was this guy who decided to defraud <laughs> yeah. the IRS and he said that he had paid a million dollars or something like a million dollars in taxes and he only had $20,000 of income and they sent him a check for $980,000 or something like that automatically. Who is running internal controls? I mean, there, there just aren't any at these tax agencies. It makes you wonder, if, can you just send an email that said, I paid my taxes and those, okay, he paid. Like, they don't actually have any controls to see if he paid or not. Hey, this, is, this is because we have a self-reporting system, you know? Like, it relies on people being honest. And when they aren't, I, I don't know, we, we don't, <laughs> our system can't handle it. But anyway, I have something related to this, David. This actually made me think okay, of something. Okay. So I don't know if you, have you been following the news about the Boeing 7, 737 MAX that crashed? Yeah, so there was the two crashes. Some countries wanted to ground it, and then finally the states wanted to ground it. There was an Indonesian, I believe, Indonesian Airlines flight that crashed a few months ago. And then recently the same plane crashed in similar, somewhat similar circumstances in uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopian Airlines, which is, I didn't know this, a world-class airline. So that this would be like, imagine if Delta, a Delta plane crashed right here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I've been, I, I started reading about it last night because I was wondering, like, you know, is there something wrong with the planes? Uh, because the U.S. has now grounded all the planes, too. Everywhere in the world, they're all grounded. Apparently, there was a software update that was due in December that had been promised by Boeing to the f- pilots, and they were running late on it. And they had pushed it out to April. I have a horrible suspicion that it was a bug in the software, in the plane that caused both of those planes to go down. I don't know that, but based on the circumstances around this update that, that they'd been asking for that wasn't done, it's possible that, this, that a software bug literally caused a plane to crash. I think I remember hearing something about something changed in the autopilot 
Well, yeah, these planes are so automated now. When they take off, the pilot doesn't touch anything most of the time. They're just watching and monitoring. And so if something goes wrong, like if there's a bug and they, the plane goes out of control, they don't have a lot of time to, re- to react. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so anyway, the reason this is related is because I think like so much of our lives now is run by software, right? Not you know in our profession, but in the world at large. And if we can't keep control over this software, then it'll, it literally will kill people or it will give them millions of dollars of refunds that they shouldn't have had. It's a, it's a fascinating and terrible, tragic situation that could have been prevented by a software update being delivered on time. Yeah. And I think the original part of it is there was a change in behavior that maybe wasn't even, they didn't communicate it out. And so pilots discovered some weird acceleration is not the right term here, but there was, there's some acceleration problem if you want to use it, if you want to call it that, but pilots didn't, the plane wasn't acting the way they expected to act because it wasn't communicated to them that, Hey, there's a behavior change in the, in the plane. Right, right. And so, yeah. So, so even, even if there's a software that goes out without a bug, how do you stay on top of the communications? Rip. Right. And know, know what the changes yeah. are. Yeah. So anyway, um, getting back to accounting, I wanted to talk about something really exciting, David, the Internal Revenue Code. <laughs> okay. Everybody can hit skip 30 seconds if you want right now. No, 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 wait, wait, hear no, me out okay, before wait, you okay. skip, okay? Got it, got it. okay? Before you skip, let me tell you what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm talking about IRC section 7216. The reason I got into this, I'm not a tax person, so I very rarely read the IRC other than to uh, pass the CPA exam. A listener was following the bot keeper story. If you're a new listener, highly recommend you go back and check out the bot keeper episodes that we did recently all about my concerns, and David, you have these concerns too, right? About confidential client information being sent potentially offshore without being disclosed and software companies needing to be disclosing this to CPAs if, they're, if they are in fact using offshore labor. Don't want to get too much into that, but I, I want to talk about this law. So this listener, he, he was listening to the Botkeeper story and he said, well, you know, there's a really good reason to be concerned about this as a CPA, and it's because in the IRC section 7216, there are actual criminal penalties for disclosing tax return information, information used in connection with preparing a tax return to anyone, anyone, anywhere, uh, without getting permission, explicit permission from your clients to do so. The the penalties are potentially really stiff, and th- this is not something that is often enforced. It's a law that was you know, written back in 1971, but it's still on the books and it could still be applied. So just to give you an idea of, of this, if you are convicted for disclosing tax return information without permission improperly, it, it has to be reckless and intentional. Uh, you can be fined not more than $1,000 or in prison, not more than one year or both for each violation. So each client up to a year in prison. Uh, there's also a civil penalty under a different IRC section, 6713, that for, of $250 per incident that doesn't require that the disclosure be knowing or reckless. And just in case you think that you might not be subject to this because you don't prepare tax returns, tax return information under the code is all the information tax return preparers obtain from taxpayers or other sources in any form or manner that is used to prepare tax returns or is obtained in connection with the preparation of returns, which I'm not a lawyer, but to me, the QuickBooks file, the accounting data is part of that, right? You can't prepare a tax return without your trial balance, without your general ledger, can you? So this is why accounting software companies 
need to understand the strict disclosure requirements around client information and where it goes. Uh, accounting firms have to be upfront with their clients and get their explicit permission to send this information to anyone else, and especially if it's going offshore. And I mean, that's a big disconnect, right? Like software companies and apps don't have to disclose it to their customers, but accountants and CPAs need to disclose it to their clients. Yeah. And that's that's the disconnect. And so, so at some level, like, yes, any of you software developers are listening, take note. But another level, any of you CPAs and accountants that are out there, you have to be asking these mm-hmm. questions. And for anyone who's interested in reading more, uh, there is a link to the IRS uh, Frequently Asked Questions page that I used to figure out what this all means in our show notes. One more thing I forgot to add, there is an explicit provision about offshore labor in the law that says, if the other tax return preparer is located out of the United States or any territory or possession of the United States, the taxpayer must agree and sign a form consenting to the disclosure. And you said that this was all written in 1971? Yeah. I wonder what what the what drove this. People just don't invent these laws and start making them up, but usually there's a something took place that caused somebody to yeah, write well, this law. Well, I mean, to me, it makes sense, right? Like tax return information, as uh, we all know, is very personal and private. Donald Trump doesn't want his tax returns to be seen by the American public, right? <laughs> I don't want my tax returns to be out there for anyone to review. So I think it's legit. Right, I should know if I'm if I, if you're my tax preparer, David, and I give you my social security number and all my personal information and my financial information, you should have to get my permission to go and disclose that to anyone else outside of your firm. Because yeah, in theory, the basic you, uh, the basic trust or your your realistic expectation as a client is like, hey, I just gave it to you, yeah, in in, in, in your office, yeah, exactly. And your employees, yeah. I, I there's logic there. Okay. It's gotcha. completely reasonable. And so that's why companies like Botkeeper that talk a big game about using AI and artificial intelligence and your data never leaving the United States, but and and they they sell this service to CPA firms, but then they actually have an office in the Philippines and they they say that the office in the Philippines only does admin work. Well, if you have a CPA firm that doesn't know about this, and apparently there are a number of them who didn't, then they have shipped confidential client information, tax return information offshore, and they are at risk of criminal penalty, at least civil penalties. And not just under the IRC, but also many states, like California, for instance, prohibit this unless you get written permission. So I, that's, that's my rant for today on that topic. No, I, and, and I think you mentioned like you uh, came across uh Another and the reason it's important is you're like now now that this is like in your Google search yeah. radar like you're getting like there's another company that's kind of similar uh, with with a robot or something. Yes. So this is not I'm not just on a mission to like destroy a company. Okay. Like to me this is a much bigger issue than Botkeeper. Uh, I think that this is actually a problem potentially with many companies in this space that handle client information on behalf of accountants. I was surfing the internet yesterday, literally yesterday. And I came across a site called Gapify.com, G-A-P-P-I-F-Y.com. And I thought to myself, the bots are multiplying because the way Gapify sells itself is bots for accountants by accountants. And it's this company that claims to have created a bot. They give their bot a name. It's Alan. They say that Alan automates manual repetitive tasks and can be deployed in days, not months. They talk about how you add Alan as a user in your system. 
you have a short meeting with a Gapify CPA who then configures Alan so that Alan can do all your tasks for you. And the tasks that Alan does, there are three areas. It's accounts payable, so like vendor setup and onboarding, answering vendor payment inquiries, open PO accrual and maintenance. They do accounts receivable, such as collections, follow-up, and escalations. And then general ledger stuff, such as recording and estimated accruals and you know handling reclasses and all this stuff. Now, David, does this sound like stuff that an AI can actually do today, given the current state of AI? Not fully. Not, I mean, I, I think this is like that robotic process automation stuff, right? They, they're going to work with you to, to somebody has to customize this and, and do this. But it feels like you know, look at some of their videos, they only do some AR collections. Right. But, that's from that's all I can tell that they do, actually. They, they say they do this other stuff, but from, I can tell it's just AR collections work. They're sending out emails to tell people to wait. Yeah. And we know there are automated systems for doing collections, but like in, even in the video... Right. I watched this video. They do have a NetSuite collections demo where they plug into NetSuite. It looks like a human is controlling the cursor. I don't see <laughs> I don't see the bots. There's no video showing the bots. And I actually did a, a LinkedIn search because I was like, no, they can't be. Are they using do they have an office in the Philippines? Yep. They've got people in Manila. They even have a job posting on their website. They're less sneaky than Botkeeper was, where they're hiring for accounting administration in Manila. They say they are looking for a detail-oriented accountant to manage Gapify's accounts payable, accounts receivable, and payroll functions. Why would they need to hire a person to do that if Alan, the bot, does it? I don't think Alan is real. Got it. Which I think there was even an article I saw on Twitter, um, something about Europe AI companies. Like 40% have no AI at all? Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. So yeah, this was a big story this week, and I almost forgot about it. 40%, according to a report, 40% of AI startups in Europe don't actually use AI. And this is a, this is the Verge reporting this, which is like really super mainstream tech. Tech journalism, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And the survey, the survey they're citing was done by a VC firm called MMC. MMC studied something like 2,830 AI startups in 13 EU countries and said that 40% of them, in 40% of the cases, they could find no mention of evidence of AI. To me, I, I, don't, I haven't dug into the study, but that's like me going to Gapify or Botkeeper and looking for videos. I'm like, okay, show me the bots. Show me the bots. And there's no videos of any bots. There's no evidence that there are actually any bots. And in all likelihood, it's just human beings, also known as mechanical Turks, Go look that up on Wikipedia. It's fascinating. Doing the work. And these companies are selling it as AI. It's a humongous scandal. I think it will be. Yeah, I mean, it, European startups, but I mean, eventually it'll be US startups, some, uh, some similar article. And, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see who's going to investigate this deeper. Yeah, if 40% of European AI startups are fake AI, then what do you think it is in the US? It's going to be, I, I would imagine it's, you know, 40% or more. It's, it's not like we're more ethical in the <laughs> tech world than in Europe, right? If anything, potentially less because there's less regulation. I hope that somebody digs into this and figures out what is really going on because I, I think there's a lot of shady activity going on. And yeah, so what? It, it, you know, if you're not handling confidential information, then okay, fine, go have your fun and buyer beware. But when it's CPA firms that you're serving and this is, confidential client information, social security numbers, tax return information, general ledger information, customer lists, vendor lists. You got to be careful with that. There must be standards. So I have a question, um, and I don't have a ton of knowledge of the big four, but I do understand the big four are big. They're gigantic, right? And they have employees all over the world. Yeah. 
And are they like really good about disclosing like, hey, you know, this week somebody over here might be looking at your data and they're in a different country. Mm-hmm. Like, are they really good about that? Or is it just kind of like people just assume they must do that because they're just the big four? Well, for them, it's different because, you know, let's say you're KPMG, they have a, an office, they have multiple offices in India where they do this sort of work. And it's it's them. It's not like they're offshoring it to a third party provider. OK, so this only matters if it's third party. Yeah, not so it's your firm. I mean, I don't know the legal of it because obviously it's different entities and whatnot. But like the the key is it's not that it's wrong to disclose this stuff to third parties and it's not wrong to offshore it. That's not the problem here. The problem is when you do it and you don't tell your clients and you don't get their explicit permission to do it. That is when you are at risk of civil and criminal penalties. So companies that don't disclose the offshoring to the CPA firms they serve are putting them at serious risk. All right. So, so, so accounts and bookkeepers, that's a lesson. You, you have to be aware of this and ask this question to every app. I, th- I think we have to point. because we can't trust them. And not just apps, just any, 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 any services you sign up for yeah. that could touch your client data. Even I would argue if you're doing marketing automation and other, you know, maybe it's not direct client data, but I could see this umbrella being tossed out there is kind of big. Yep. If there's any P2 information getting out there. I guess uh, some other news. Let's see. What else do you, we well, you have? You had here? some news about Canopy. Yes, Canopy. So, so Canopy makes um, software for tax accountants. I think they have about thirty thousand. Uh, I don't know if it's accountants or firms that use it. Uh, and it's it's and to, it's it's a practice management software. To manage, right? Yes, your client workflows. Got it. Um, and they started out, I think, a little kind of niche. It only handled one use case, and then it kind of got into a bunch of other use cases. And then they were going to actually start doing like tax prep, uh, true tax prep work. They were going to build that and roll that out. So like like actual, not just practice management software, but actual software to process tax returns. Exactly. Right. So the, so you'd never have to leave their app kind of. Got in it. Way, right? well, that'd be great. And and so they've been growing up to this point. They've been growing really well. Like I've 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 not used their software, but I've, I'm in the space. You see them and I'm like, oh, Canopy's doing pretty good. They keep growing. Even in January, they announced that they were they moved into their new headquarters in Utah. They're going to double their workforce. This is January. So this is what, mm-hmm. 45 days ago? And this week, they laid off half of their staff, 40% of their staff. Wow. So wait, they lease this big office space. They obviously think they're going to keep growing to have, how many square foot was it, feet? It was like um, 60,000 square feet or something or more than that. It, it's a lot. Yeah, there's a good article in accounting today that's pretty deep about it. Um, and then they had to lay off. Well, so you know what this sounds to me like? Um, it sounds like they were you know, overly ambitious with their hiring. And then the growth just didn't keep up with that, and they had to scale back. I think I saw on a, most of the layoffs were in sales and marketing. I think that's what I saw as well. I think they, somebody said it was like eighty-five percent of the sales staff yeah. possibly got laid off. Um, and it, it's interesting because accounting today has an, uh, a quote from um, Glassdoor where somebody was saying that oh, the reason uh, a former employee was saying if they didn't spend so much money on the um, the new building and ping pong tables and all that. This could have been forecasted properly, et cetera, et cetera. But the response of employees that were laid off on LinkedIn is overwhelmingly supportive of Canopy. It's like it's actually kind of amazing of how even the Utah tech community has pulled together other apps. You're like, hey, we're hiring anybody that was at Canopy if you're looking for a job. Like the, it's very, very impressive kind of the way this is was handled. Well, that's good, right? Because you don't want 81 people leaving your company and being really pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. We didn't we we went through at Flowcast something similar, thankfully not nearly as extensive as that, but um we did overhire 
uh, last year in our sales team. And then we restructured how we wanted to handle our sales. And it, it meant that a good number of people we didn't need anymore, unfortunately. And so we had to lay off, I think it was like 20 people. And they all landed okay. You know, we took care of them, but it's just one of those things in the world of startups where it's really hard to forecast your growth. So I would say to any accountants who are listening that are using Canopy that don't worry too much about this because it's not that unusual and I'm sure they'll be fine. Yeah. It, uh, and I saw this Saturday morning, I think, um, it came through on LinkedIn, their CEO and founder, uh, Kurt Averell. So he, he had a post talked about how it was a heart-wrenching hour to, to do it, but he was soul-searching for like 36 hours. Like it's just been a very, very rough week for him. And it reminds me of a book that I highly recommend for anybody, even in their own accounting firms. It's called um, The Hard Thing of hard About Hard Things. The Hard Thing About Hard Things? Yeah. Building a business, there's no easy answers. Ben Horowitz, um, who's who wrote that book, he's actually part of Andreessen Horowitz. You guys have probably heard of that. Big, yeah, yeah. You know, Famous guy, yeah. Famous um, investors, uh, VC investors. Um, they, he really, he talks a lot about where he's had to lay off half his staff and the, these growth things. And, and, and you really, because of that, like it made me um, more understanding to what goes through, how hard of a decision that is for a founder of a business or CEO of a business that has to lay off people like that. And so it really, when I saw... Um, the uh, founder of Canopy's post on LinkedIn it really reminded me of that book. So I recommend everybody grab that book and then definitely look up Kurt Averill's um, yeah. LinkedIn and read his post because it's, it, it's, it's shocking because I don't think anybody saw this coming. Like they were literally 45 days ago, they had plans to double their staff. Yeah. Yeah. So something definitely did not go as planned. Um, it's not very clear what that is. So, and sometimes you, like, you see the numbers going bad mm-hmm. and you have to make a call like this to survive. And hopefully that's the the play for Canopy because people spoke very highly of Canopy. Yeah, it's definitely better than just running right off a cliff, which does happen at some startups, unfortunately, and they just shut the doors. Uh, well, let's hope they succeed. Um, I've got one more story here. Are we on a good note? I feel like this, uh, this episode's <laughs> been a little, a little heavy. Uh, I don't know about that because this title of this uh, article in Accounting Today is called Why Is Your Firm Worth Less Than You Think? Oh, this, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, this this was a story that uh, I, I saw on Accounting Today, and they tweeted it out. And uh, so I clicked through, I read the story, and it's it's by two guys who run a, a firm called Transition Advisors. They're probably brokers, I imagine, given that name, brokers of CPA firms. And they give, in this article, four reasons why you may not get the you know 1.25 times annual revenues that you think you're going to get for your firm when you sell it. The thing that struck me is that they didn't mention technology at all. Not a single mention of, if you're a desktop-based practice that's using paper and pencil and calculators, you might not be able to get as much as you think for your firm. No, they didn't mention, they didn't, it didn't even come up. And so I pointed that out on Twitter and I, you know, we had a little fun chatting about it. Well, I think the Twitter thread was actually more interesting than the article. Yeah. Like you came out and said, hey, you know, maybe it's really 80 cents on the dollar because you just have desktop based practice. And I kind of followed you up. I'm like, I think it's like 25 cents on the dollar. But then the amazing thing is how um, many forward thinking cloud accountants like Brent Forbish, Alan Douglas came out and they're talking about how like, I'm not even going to pay you that much because I'm just going to steal your A and B clients yeah. by just with, with some Facebook marketing ads, right? They, it's uh, how fast it went from you thinking that article is like, you'll get 80 cents a dollar and you're, you're bringing like, by the time the article is done, like people are not going to buy these firms at all. Like your value might be zero. 
Brent Forbush, he said, talked to an old school firm, wanted 1.25, 100% cash up front. I had to walk out holding a serious face. Nothing is selling for over one and less with 100% cash up front. Uh, Alan said five years ago, traditional firms were paying uh, 70 cents on the dollar on average. And he said that today, knowing what we know about the state of traditional firms, you'd be a sucker to pay 25 cents. Uh, Alan made a really good point, actually. He said that it only costs 20 cents on the dollar to acquire a dollar of revenue uh, if you use good online marketing. You know, for me to get a client that is, uh, I don't know, $10,000 a year in revenue, I'd probably spend $2,000 on sales and marketing to get them. And that checks in with my gut. I think that's probably accurate. So why would I ever go and acquire a firm? Why wouldn't I just, unless I really needed to grow fast, right? Why wouldn't I just spend the money on sales and marketing and steal the clients? You'll steal their A B clients because they're going to try to find new accountants anyways, because they don't want to stay with this firm that's going to be sold. So basically all that's left is somebody's going to yeah. come to buy your C clients, which means they're only going to pay 10 cents a client <laughs> on the dollar. The comment thread that happened on Twitter about this article is actually better than the article. So we, sh- we probably should include the, the comment thread as well. And so I think a lot of firm owners who are not listening to this podcast are going to be in for a rude awakening when they do go to try and sell their firm. Yeah, I think uh, Amanda Aguilar really summarized it well, like buyers these days are paying for processes Mm -hmm. and tech savvy staff, not the clients. So if you don't have good processes and tech savvy, tech savvy staff, nobody's going to buy you. They don't want your clients because they can steal your clients. Jason Deshays, he said that he considered doing an acquisition last year, but realized that the effort to try and fix up the firm was not worth the cost financially or emotionally. It's a lot of effort to merge into a firm, right? Or merge a firm into yours. And those people, the, yeah. the staff, aren't going to like, but you have to train them all? I don't want to do that. That's the state, of, state of the, the state of the industry this week. So we'll see uh, what news comes our way next week. So if somebody has a, a lighter story that would be fun for us to talk about, like get a little laughs on the, the podcast, how would they get that to us? Well, you can tweet at me. I'm at Blake T. Oliver, and I want to hear your good stories. And I also want to hear all the, the dirt you got for me, because as somebody said, um, we are the TMZ of accounting here on the Cloud Accounting Podcast. <laughs> Hopefully not that. That's what going concern <laughs> is, right? <laughs> that, yeah, that, no, that, going that, concern that. can have that label, but... Uh, um, yeah. What about you, David? Uh, you can get a hold of me at, at David Leary, and everybody can like our Facebook page. Just look for Cloud Accounting Podcast on Facebook. And hopefully, we're going to start doing some more of those Facebook lives like we did before. It's, uh, it's a good way to get good engagement with the community. And as we said at the beginning of this episode, please do us a solid and leave us a review. We will read your review on the air. Yeah, th- those things do matter. They're important to us. See you next week. Everybody have a good St. Patrick's Day. Later. Bye. Bye.